Good evening and welcome to the first of two programmes on the politics of land in Ireland in the early years of the Irish state. There's an assumption that during the Anglo-Irish War from 1919 to 1921, all those of a Republican bent put their shoulders to the Sinn Féin wheel, ceased all other forms of activism and pushed hard for independence. Another line of thought makes the assumption that once independence was achieved, the often vicious land agitation that had characterised the last 40 years of British rule simply ceased. Both assumptions are entirely erroneous. In some parts of the country, in 1919 and 1920, land seizures were far more common than IRA attacks on the Crown forces. Furthermore, the Civil War was accompanied by a massive resurgence in the illegal seizure of agricultural land, forcing the first Free State Government to create a sizeable military unit to deal with the problem. Twenty twenty three marks the centenary of the first land legislation ever introduced by an Irish independent government. Tonight we look at the environment around the nineteen twenty three Land Act, the purpose of the legislation and the success or otherwise of the first two governments of the new Irish Free State in finishing the job of acquiring and redistributing landlord property, a process left incomplete by the departing British administration. So by the outbreak of the Great War in 1914, it's estimated that about 80% of Irish land had been transferred under all of the British Purchase Acts from 1881 to 1903 and 1909, but mainly under the 1903 Wyndham Land Act, which saw the revolutionary transfer. Dr. Terence Dooley is a professor of history at Maynooth University and in his book The Land for the People he has studied the land strategy of Sinn Féin and the IRA during the War of Independence as well as the policies of the first two governments of the Irish Free State. I asked him how many Irish tenants by the beginning of the Anglo-Irish War had acquired their own farms under the terms of the British land purchase legislation of the early 1900s. Now, according to a return in 1906 of mansions and untended lands in Ireland, there is still about 2.6 million acres of land in landlords' ownership. So these are the landlords who have remained resident in Ireland post-1903. What we really don't know is the extent to which landlords left the country after the sale of their estates, even going back all the way to 1881, and especially under the 1903 Land Act. But that return tells us there were 1,600 mansions still in Ireland, occupied. They won't all be country houses. That is probably less than half of the original number of country houses in Ireland in the 19th century. So you still have considerable amounts of land in the old land that elites land ownership by 1914. Now, in terms of land hunger at the time, around the time of independence or the War of Independence and then subsequently the Civil War, was all of the tenant animosity aimed at the remaining landlords or were there other targets? No, it wasn't all aimed at landlords. And I mean, if we go back to the 18th, 19th century, I mean, it's quite clear that the animus isn't between the smallholders and the landless and so on and the landlords. It's it's often, very often between the smallholders, the landless and the farmers in between. Traditional landlords are an obvious target during the revolutionary period, but given the extent of land hunger that develops 
during the Great War, and especially from 1917 onwards, it is inevitable that it's not just going to be landlords who are going to be targeted, but large farmers, graziers and so on as well. And how were frustrations acted out during the War of Independence when it came to unsatisfied land hunger? The beginning of land agitation centres around the introduction of the Compulsory Tillage Act in 1917. That puts the onus on landholders to break up 10% more of their land in order to make it available for tillage farming. It's something of, of an irony that it's another British act that opens up this whole area now once again of access to land. From 1917 onwards and Sinn Féin's manipulation of the land question, and they're doing exactly the same thing as Constitutional Irish Parliamentary Party would have done before them, they're once again advocating you know, the land for the people, the breakup of these grazier lands and so on. So you're going to have a series of incidents and events throughout the country where Sinn Féin will organise demonstrations accompanied by marching bands and people moving onto lands with ploughs, driving off cattle and, and, and all the rest. But that really gains momentum from the spring of 1920. And of course that also coincides with the IRA destruction of RIC barracks, therefore you know, leaving wide areas of the country free for this type of, of activity. Kevin O'Shiel, who later becomes a member of the Irish Land Commission, um, you know, talks about the land agitation spreading like a prairie fire from the west to the east. So what's happening is you have groups of men, sometimes organised as committees, or you will have individuals, and they are approaching large farmers, they're approaching the old landed elite, and they're demanding access to more land. In some cases where the landlords, for example, refuse, they will take land forcibly. So we have incidents of this happening literally all, all, over, the, all over the country. At that stage, the doll, seeing what's happening, begins to fear that the land agitation or this growing social revolution is going to take away from the political revolution. And therefore, they send their own army against it to quell it beginning once again in the in the west of Ireland. But at that stage, I mean, there have been numerous incidents of committees approaching landowners looking for the breakup or the redistribution of farms. And how does this Sinn Féin parallel administration, how does it actually deal directly with these land seizures during the War of Independence? How does it bring it to an end by the summer of 1920? It takes a dual approach to it. First of all, it sends the IRA out into some of the most uh, difficult areas. But secondly, through the establishment of doll courts or arbitration courts. Now you have these courts sitting in a variety of different towns up and down the country. And people can go there to have their disputes dealt with. And they seem to have a, a very positive effect it also has the effect, of course, of beginning to shut down the British administrative courts, right? So from the Sinn Féin perspective, they are quelling rural disorder, but they're also taken away from the British administration in Ireland. But the judges in these courts are 
regularly making decisions which go against the people who would be seen as the natural supporters of Sinn Féin and in favour of the plaintiffs in the case, the, the uh, in some instances landlords and in many, many instances big farmers. Yeah, and I think that's you know something that's important to actually consider because it represents the fact that the people are using these courts right um, as an alternative to the British system but also willing to take the judgments that are made. But they're also holding out for the expectation that when the revolution is finished, then what Sinn Féin or the new government will do, the independent Irish government will do, will undertake a revolutionary acquisition and redistribution of lands. So the promise has been held out to them, and very many cases, as it, as it works itself through the 1920s and the 1930s, of course, we'll find that these are often empty promises. After a number of killings and violent seizures of land, fearing, as Terry Dooley has pointed out, that land acquisition might assume a greater importance than the achievement of independence, the Dáil intervened on the 29th of June 1920 and issued a decree that was intended to be taken seriously by buccaneering land grabbers and which, by and large, was obeyed, however reluctantly. It has come to our knowledge that claims have been and are being made in various parts of the country to farms and holdings which are being used and worked by the occupiers as dairy, agricultural and residential holdings and that such claims are being based on the assertion that claimants or their ancestors were formerly in occupation of the property so claimed. And whereas these claims are, for the most part, of old date and while many of them may be well-founded, others seem to be of a frivolous nature and are put forward in the hope of intimidating the present occupiers. Now it is decreed by Dáil Éireann in session assembled that the present time, when the Irish people are locked in a life-and-death struggle with their traditional enemy, is ill-chosen for stirring up strife among our fellow countrymen, and that all energies must be directed towards the clearing out, not the occupier of this or that piece of land, but the foreign invader of our country. Of course, when the Civil War began in June 1922, the legitimacy of Dáil Éireann and its decrees was called into question by Republican elements opposed to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, who saw an opportunity to exploit land hunger and frustration and to distract the provisional government of the Free State from prosecuting its campaign against the anti-treaty forces who threatened the government of Collins, Griffith and O'Higgins. The state's first Minister of Agriculture, Patrick Hogan, was concerned by a rise in the number of illegal land seizures and, in late 1922, demanded action from the Cabinet. I know these signs from my own experience. On this occasion, there is a change. Lands have been seized in autumn and there are all the signs of very serious trouble developing in the months of January and February. This new campaign, based on letters which have been captured, is well organised. It's directed as much against comparatively small farmers as against large landowners. And the general condition of affairs makes it quite clear that the land war is coming. It's quite impossible to deal with the question under the Ministry of Home Affairs as a criminal matter. The English tried it here for 20 or 30 years. I saw these measures in operation myself and they were utter failures. 
What Hogan was suggesting was that the new Garda Síochána force was simply not capable of dealing with the scale of the problem of rural land seizures and the burgeoning radicalism of agricultural labourers. Something more aggressive and persuasive was required. In January 1923, that came in the form of the creation of an entirely new force, the Special Infantry Corps. In his new book on the history of the Irish Armed Forces, Owen Kinsella has written about the short-lived SIC, created and disbanded within a 12-month period. It doesn't last very long. It's set up in January 1923 and it's disbanded in November 1923, but it's, it's commanded by Colonel Patrick Dalton and it's in response to an urgent request from the Minister for Agriculture, Patrick Hogan. He's worried that the agrarian unrest that is underway in large parts of the country is a major threat to the defence forces but to the security of the state. Now, he, at the time, envelops all agrarian unrest under the, the banner of anti-treaty activity, which of course is a very, very simplistic way of, of looking at it and that wasn't the case. The anti-treaty troops were certainly prosecuting a campaign of uh, agrarian disturbances alongside their disturbances of the railway network. So that's a, a major issue for the defence forces. But there's just a general sense of increasing lawlessness across the country and the defence forces are the ones who are asked to deal with this, which is why the Special Infantry Corps is set up. How big does it get and what kind of things does it do? I think it probably hits a peak um, a peak level of about 2,700 troops it does a few things. It, it, it There's a border unit set up, so they patrol the border. They're based in Dundalk. Obviously, it, it's dispatched to different parts of the country to try and suppress any kind of agrarian tension. It's also used as a strike-breaking unit, which leads to uh, huge problems. And it, it, it generally, wherever it goes, it very, very quickly leads to a very bad relationship or develops a very bad relationship with the local population, which would give you a sense that what they were doing was certainly not popular wherever they went. Paddy O'Daly in, in Kerry talked about I wasn't asked to bring kid gloves so I didn't. Kevin O'Higgins says of the Special Infantry Corps pretty much the same thing yeah. that they did not bring kid gloves with them and in some cases behaved quite badly didn't they? That's right. In, in Kilmacthomas in, in Waterford there's a, an agricultural strike where agricultural labourers are, are locked out of their work for refusing to accept lower pay and longer working hours and the Special Infantry Corps is effectively a strike-breaking crew down there and that's that kind of work is, is the kind of work that they did around the country and the Army's own intelligence unit by the middle of 1923 is sending reports back saying that this unit is causing massive problems for us in general in terms of the public's perception of the Defence Forces and they need to be removed as quickly as possible. O'Higgins is an interesting one because on the one hand he is particularly hard on Mulcahy and he's you know, hugely opposed to any kind of indiscipline but when it comes to the Special Infantry Corps he doesn't see it as, as indiscipline, he sees them as prosecuting the war the way that particular element of the war the way he thinks that it should be prosecuted and it's you know it's I suppose it's a little bit of splitting hairs on O'Higgins's part. But at some point it just isn't worth retaining the Special Infantry Corps anymore. No and uh, by the end of 1923 a, a lot of this the emergency situations the emergency the lawlessness has been it's been suppressed as much as possible the Garda Corner are strengthening their hold in terms of creating relationships with the, with the localities as well, but also in terms of being more effective as a policing unit. So the Special Infantry Corps is a bit like a lot of the other specialist corps that are set up, like the Salvage Corps, the Coastal Marine Service, they're all wound down towards the end of 1923. Cost saving also plays a part in that as well. Now from the truce period, and especially from early 1922 onwards, I mean, you have no real law enforcement in operation in the country. 
the RIC have been disbanded, uh, the British Army is being withdrawn, so again, the countryside is wide open to all types of activity. But as happens and has always happened in civil war, the rural mindset changes to the extent that people who wouldn't have involved themselves in criminality in the past suddenly become involved in the same. So you have this dramatic escalation, for example, in the burning of country houses. More than twice as many are burned in the Civil War as are burned during the War of Independence. Looting becomes a problem. Further to that, you have an escalation in land grabbing. Now, sometimes the land grabbing is associated with the burning of country houses and the idea that if the landlord goes, the land will be available for acquisition and redistribution. But it's not always the case um, that it's just simply the old traditional land that elite who suffer. But also, if you take the case of Lugacorn, for example, in County Leash, it is Protestant settler families who were brought in in the 1880s during the plan of campaign. They find themselves targeted by people who are alleging to represent the former evicted tenants. So land grabbing becomes much more of a problem in 1922-23 than it has been at any time before. Now, most of the big house burnings, as you, as you say, actually take place during the, during the Civil War, not the War of Independence. How many of those were related to land seizures as opposed to the military agenda of the Republican forces, say? The book I've recently written on this points out it's very difficult to be definitive on this. Essentially, you know, the argument is that if you want to find out the motivations behind the burning of any individual house, you have got to look at it at the point in time of burning, but very often as well, the wider or the much longer historical context. But certainly... There are cases such as Tuberdaly in County Offaly, Kilby in County Tipperary and so on, where there are very strong agrarian agendas at play in the locality. Arguably, it's what happens afterwards in the sense that if you take my drum castle in County Westmead, you have the burning of the house that's definitely linked to a counter-reprisal on behalf of the IRA for destruction of the village of Knockrockery or the burning of farmhouses in the locality by black and tan some weeks before. So undoubtedly, I mean, that's a counter-reprisal. But in the weeks and months that follows, there are people who come back and they destroy the infrastructure of the domain. So there is a, an attempt to ensure that the landlord isn't going to come back. And in that case, Lord Castlemaine makes the decision by about 1924-25. He's going to sell the land of his his untended land in his domain to the Land Commission, about 1,200-1,300 acres or so, and that will be redistributed amongst the local people. So therefore, in the future, there is going to be an outcome that possibly suits local uneconomic holders, whether or not that was a contributory factor to the burning on the night itself, you know, remains to be seen. The 1923 Land Act of Agriculture Minister Patrick Hogan was the first piece of land legislation introduced by the Free State Government. What was it designed to achieve? The 1923 Land Act had two main aims. It was intended to complete the transfer of land ownership from landlords to tenants that had come to a halt at the beginning of the Great War 
because the funding that had been available for that up to now was being used for the war effort. So there were still 114,000 farms that had to be transferred from landlord to tenant, and they'd been waiting for a long time for this. Secondly, to relieve congestion. And in order to relieve congestion, the government was given the power to compulsorily acquire untended lands that could be redistributed to bring small, uneconomic farms up to a more viable level. So it works in two levels. Now, the difficulties, of course, in all of this is that of that 114,000 tenant farmers who are still waiting for their lands to be transferred, part of the reason for the delay even before the Great War was that these were so small and uneconomic that the Land Commission was reluctant to actually advance the money to these farmers to purchase their farms. So they're in a, you know, in a fairly difficult uh, situation. How well did the Commonwealth government fare when it came to acquiring and redistributing land? Again, when you look at the terms of the Act itself, it's a piece of legislation that requires considerably more investigation, I suppose, in terms of how it worked. But it began rather successfully, but slowed down very quickly. And it was this slowing down from the mid-1920s onwards that causes a great deal of rural frustration that ultimately uh, certainly helps Fianna Fáil come to power then in the early 1930s. But as well as that, I mean, Cumann and Gale and Patrick Hogan, they played what might be termed pragmatic politics because Hogan knew that the, the ruination of Irish agriculture would be, you know, the creation of a, of a nation of small farmers. So there were clauses written into the 1923 Land Act that were deliberately intended, for example, to protect the main farms. Now, the main farms are those that are still held on to by the old landed elite. So if you could prove that you had historic woodland or that you had a stud farm, then the Land Commission technically couldn't touch the land or if you are providing employment. And again, you know, something that we don't often consider is the amount of employment that these domains continued to provide during the 1920s. So even at the height of the revolutionary period, on an estate such as Bessborough in County Kilkenny, the employees of the estate were petitioning the government to ensure that the house wouldn't be burned because if it was, dozens of families in the locality were going to suffer as a result. So the government had to look at the situation and consider, well, is it more important to ensure the employment of possibly dozens of families in a locality or acquire a domain, break it up and redistribute it to maybe considerably less families? So, you know, an economic decision had to be made on that. How did the Commonwealth government appear to A, big farmers, uh, B, small farmers and landless with their efforts to curtail the activities during the Civil War of those seizing land? Whose side did they appear to be on? I think it's interesting when you look at the, the conference that is held in April of 1923 where you have landlord representatives and farmer representatives, right? And I, I would say, you know, mainly large farmer representation that's, that's there. And Hogan later reports to Cabinet that 
the outcome of the conference is. They are being told that if the present government doesn't do something to sort out this situation uh, and ensure the final transfer of land ownership and the safeguarding of property, then they will put in a party the next time who will do this. So the strong farmers would look towards Common Gael, who I would say are taking a fairly pragmatic approach to all of this. Because Kevin O'Higgins, after all, makes that famous statement that we were the most conservative revolutionaries who ever put through a revolution. Now, when you look, of course, at, at O'Higgins' background, and when you look at Patrick Hogan's background, I mean, both of them are very similar. Strong farmer, professional classes, both very good friends, both working together simultaneously to introduce a suite of legislation that is aimed at restoring law and order in rural Ireland. And, you know, while O'Higgins is putting through, you know, emergency legislation that deals with criminality and so on, uh, Hogan's putting through the 1923 Land Act. So strong farmers are going to have some degree of comfort in relation to how Common Gael are approaching the, the situation. The 1923 Land Act promised a major redistribution programme. However, the reality was that the first Free State Government simply did not have the money to deliver on such an ambitious agrarian agenda. Ironically, it was the British Government that underwrote the scheme. Author and historian Tony McCarthy has looked closely at the guarantees offered by the old enemy for Ireland's first tilt at land purchase. At the time the people at large wouldn't have been aware that they were beholding. In fact, Patrick Hogan, in speaking in the Dáil, in introducing the Act, made no reference whatsoever to the guarantee. Nor is there any reference to the guarantee in the Land Act itself. It only emerged subsequent to it in February 1924, when a memorandum was presented to Parliament, which basically said that we have just underwritten 25 to 30 million pounds of Irish land bonds uh, that were there. That was the first it became public. Now, state papers subsequently identified the fact that there had been secret discussions held particularly around January 1923 and February 1923 at the height of the Civil War. Uh, But they were, at that time, there were discussions between uh, Cosgrave, who was the president of the Dendal, Patrick Hogan and Kevin O'Higgins with their British counterparts. And those discussions were part of a wider discussion that was going on. There was a a document, uh, a pamphlet released some years later by uh, Maurice Moore, called British Plunder and Irish Blunder, or maybe vice versa. But in that, he highlighted the fact that there were ongoing discussions with regard to things like RIC pensions, with regard to war compensation, with regard to payments for railways that had gone in, and the land issue. But basically, the British government was underwriting the land purchase schemes of the Commonwealth Free State Government. They were. I mean, that, that's, that's what the reality of it was. Because you can imagine, you have... The Land Act was introduced on the 28th of May, 1923. The Civil War had ended four days earlier, on the 24th of May, when the call to lay down arms was, uh, t- took effect. So within four days of the ending of the Civil War, which had cost about 50 million, you have a fledgling state seeking to 
enter into a transaction to, a, to the tune of about 25 to 30 million pounds at a time. And why would the British government have agreed to this? That's one of the great questions that people have grappled with over the years. And my take on that is that essentially, if you look at the, Brit- the makeup of the British cabinet at the time, it was still basically made up of a lot of landed elites. You had people like the fourth Lord Salisbury, not the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, the Salisbury's, you had the Devonshire's, you had Lord Derby, you had Curzon, you had people like that. So they still had the old patrician view of life. There was also a sense that maybe they were their brethren, the landed brethren they had in Ireland, there was still uh, an obligation towards them, those who hadn't got out under the Windham Act, because remember the Windham Act effectively ceased with World War One. There was no money for it. So you, you had that. In addition, there was possibly a fear that Ireland and this new government may renege on the annuities, which were very significant. I mean, if you take just in context, state revenues from taxation in that time year was about £20 million, whereas the annuities were about four to £5 million. So it was very significant. And there was a sense that maybe, you know, if we push too much, but there was also a sense, and this was stated, in fact, the wording that you see in the memorandum that was presented to Parliament in February 1924, eight months after it, is... There's a line in it that says it's not anticipated that any charge will in fact fall upon the Imperial Exchequer under the proposed guarantee. So they didn't feel the Irish government were going to renege. Dr Tony McCarthy on the land purchase programme of the Commonwealth Government. After the break, what happened to landlords and the controversial plan to transfer hundreds of Irish speakers in the west of the country to viable farms in the Midlands. Stay with us. Welcome back to part two of our programme on the centenary of the first land legislation of the independent Irish state. The 1923 Land Act, on the face of it at least, offered no escape route for the remaining landlords, who thus far had opted not to sell their estates to their tenants. Under the new free state legislation, they could now be compelled to do so. However, in what was to become something of an Irish administrative tradition, there was more to this apparent inflexibility than met the eye. Section 29 of the 1923 Act provides for compulsion, but there's little doubt that when that was being introduced, there was a a feeling that it was being done very reluctantly and it would be used very sparingly. Because already in the 1909 Act, there had been an element of compulsion, again, rarely used. And there was a sense and a knowledge by people like Patrick Hogan and by Kevin O'Higgins, who were the, the two main architects of the 23 Land Act. There was a sense that we don't want compulsion taking place because compulsion is not good in terms of image. And after all, the whole, one of the main elements of the government at the time was the image that this was going to create in terms of, one, its international image. Two, the impression it would give to Northern Unionists. And if so, if you had compulsion or worse still, expropriation, you would, this would not reflect well on the Irish government. It was very keen to establish itself as a country where the, the rule of law pertained. 
And that mentality, is that why the, the Commonwealth government, the, the first free state government, did not do a particularly impressive job when it came to acquiring land? The Fianna Fáil government that takes over in 1932 acquires, I think, almost twice as much mm. land as the, uh, as the first government does in a period of 10 years. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of that because when you're down to the, the last 2 million out of the 11 million acres, there's usually an issue why this is you have either landlords who aren't willing to participate in the scheme, landlords who can't for whatever reason, given their level of indebtedness or land that may have problems associated with it. When you get into that level, you're, that, it's more difficult. But, I mean, remember when they introduced the 1923 Land, land Act, it was part of a wider suite of agricultural uh, legislation all focused at improving the quality of, uh, of agriculture. You had things like the Livestock Breeding Act, you had the famous what was called the Eggs Act, you had the Dairy Produce Act, you had a range of these things that were meant really to improve. And I suppose what, what would be controversial in terms of looking at them, were they committed to making land purchase happen? Because the f- mere fact of enacting the legislation within weeks of the ending of the Civil War was possibly enough to satisfy their electoral base. Because remember, if you look at the Common Gale electoral base, Big it wasn't the congests in no. the west of Ireland. It was the large farmers, the grazers, the urban middle class. Some of the people who were going to yeah. be compulsorily acquired. Exactly. In, yeah. in so that, that, was, that was unlikely to happen. Talk to me about some of the workarounds that people attempted in the courts, whether they be graziers, big, you know, big farmers, graziers with lots of land whose land was going to be possibly acquired. And also landlords who still had, had not sold out. What were they bringing to the the courts during the 1920s to say, I should not have my land compulsorily acquired? Yeah, well, you, you had the range. I mean, for instance, one of the big outs would have been the home farm as the to domain, what it was. The domain, the domain yeah. yeah. And domains could go from 25 acres up to a thousand acres and there was an argument there was constant arguments and again you, you had it with the graziers I mean where you have wealth you have power and where you have power you have access to the law and if you don't have a willing plaintiff in this case perhaps the land commission or the Irish government and remember it's predominantly the land commission because they were the ones charged with operating the, uh, the land purchase schemes you know you don't have someone who's coming very aggressively to it and they're not going to get tied up in it. So you had those. You had, for instance, people introduced the, you know, landlords uh, would have had the 11-month arrangement. An 11-month arrangement basically left land as regarded as untenanted because it wasn't occupied under a long lease, even though many of these 11-month arrangements continued for many, many years to come. So there were mechanisms, as I say, that we've spoken of. uh, But, you know, how aggressive were the Land Commission pushing for this? How, how aggressive were their political masters forcing them to push it? And were the political masters in the 1930s more aggressive than the political masters in the 1920s? Well, they may have had a different agenda because remember, when the Land Act was introduced, you could very easily see there's various reasons why it would have been introduced, but one of them would be that it gave the opportunity for patronage and favour. And let's just say maybe Fianna Fáil in the 1930s were 
a bit more into the patronage and favour element of it, as opposed to the orthodoxy of the Gael government in the 1920s, even though they possibly did the, their fair share of it too. Over the first three decades of the 20th century, almost 10,000 landlords sold up either to the British government or to the Irish Free State. Some, like the Marquis of Lansdowne in Kerry, decided to, or managed to, hold on to some of their Irish land. The bulk of the old decency, however, took their cash or their bonds and left. Tony McCarthy has looked at what they did with their money. There was a book written in about 1911, The 50 American Great Families. If you go through those 50 families, they are all, were people like the, the Astors and the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and all of these families. They're still there. You know, they're present because their assets were principally economic earning assets. They bought equities, they bought oil wells, they bought factories. Uh, so most of those 50 families are still among the largest 50 families. If you were to take the 50 top Irish 50 families in 1911 you would have a fairly major research project on your hands because many of these have disappeared if we take for instance the most preeminent of them all the Dukes of Leinster the Dukes of Leinster you know were all powerful when they sold their land they generated 776,000 pounds in 1903 this is around Kildare around Carton Kildare House, Car- all of that yeah, area the yeah. Dermot, Kilkay Maynooth. When they sold those states, they generated £776,000, which was the equivalent of about £84 million today. I think the current Duke of Leinster, um, I'm sure he's a very, very fine man, uh, but doesn't have the financial status that his predecessors had. Far, far as where he lives in Norfolk, is in market gardening and things like that. So they disappeared, as indeed did many, many others. So what did they do with the money? Research shows us that, firstly, very few of them were what we say flahulak and wasted the money. There were some, the Moors and people like that, you know, who actually wasted the money. They bought Rolls Royces, they went off gold prospecting in Canada and other places. And of course, they lost a lot of money. They were very much in the minority. The vast majority of people went about investing in uh, stock market quoted instruments I don't mean ordinary shares, usually debentures. And they... These are blue chip investments. These are blue chip investments where the emphasis would have been on income. So if you take the average landlord selling his land in 1903, he was generating a return in terms of rents of about 3.5% from his land. He could very easily, with the money he received for his property get three and a half percent. For instance, he could Would buy... Would that still have been the case in the 1920s? In the 1920s, it, it, it was actually better for them because two things were happening. One, they were getting fixed incomes off it. I mean, usually these instruments they invested in had fixed incomes coming from a certain percentage. With the deflationary pressures that came about in the 1920s, their fixed income was worth more. So they all did... They would have done okay in the 1920s and they would have at least matched what they had had from their lands. The problem, of course, comes post-1929, post the crash, the depression. A lot of them had invested in railway stocks. In, in the 19th century, the number of railway stocks listed on the stock exchange was in the hundreds. In the 1920s, it was down to 
low 20s. By 1939, there was one railway stock, and that was British Rail, and they all morphed into it. So anyone who invested in railway stocks, and a lot of landlords did, when you look at the portfolios, you see it, they've either... Dominion Bonds, which are placed like Cape Colony or various other places around the world, or they have railway stocks. And that's where the problem arose for them, because they gave them no protection in terms of inflation. They gave them an income for a while, and then, of course, they went bust. But they didn't give them any opportunity to fight inflation. And remember, from during the war, during the First World War, inflation was rampant. You went into a period of deflation during the 1920s, but it took off again and their investments were worthless. One of the first acts of the Fianna Fáil government elected in 1932 was to end the payment of land annuities to the British. This move prompted the so-called economic war of 1932 to 1938. So what were these land annuities that the de Valera government declined to continue paying when it first came to power? Land annuities were the repayments that were being made by Irish farmers for the purchase of their lands under all of the land acts going all the way back to 1881. By failing to return the annuities to the British Exchequer, I mean obviously the British government then retaliate with its, with its own uh, introduction of tariffs and so on. So you have an economic war developing down between Ireland and Britain in the 1930s and that in itself leads to you know, economic crisis, and you see the, the, the evidence of that. In counties, again, particularly along the western seaboard, Pedro O'Donnell, you know, writes quite a lot about this and, and the suffering of families in, in Donegal as a result of, of this economic uh, downturn. Now, that's resolved in 1938 when an agreement is reached, we get the treaty ports back, etc., etc. But when it comes to the important issue of land redistribution, where, as you've said, Cumannagh Gael haven't done a spectacularly good job, does the Fianna Fáil government do a better job when it comes to redistributing land? First of all, Fianna Fáil comes in, one of the planks uh, in its election manifesto is to expedite the acquisition and redistribution of lands. And undoubtedly, under its own Land Act of 1933, it begins that process. So, I mean, the 1930s sees record numbers of acres being acquired and redistributed, multiples of, of what Common Gael had managed to achieve before it. Now, it changes the hierarchy of allottees, I mean, under the 1923 Land Act, congests were the first to receive lands, followed by ex-employees of an estate, followed by representatives of either evicted tenants or the representatives from the land war era, and then others, meaning the landless. When Fianna Fáil come in, it changes. They change the, the actual hierarchy, and they begin with ex-employees, and they move it down along the line then to the very bottom again, landless of a deserving nature, whatever that meant. It also introduced migration schemes. In the past you had individual migrations from west to east or the Midlands. Now Fianna Fáil attempt the introduction of Gaeltacht colonies into the east. So you have considerably more families being migrated from west to east than you would have had under the Common Gael government. But they also more or less get rid of the loopholes that are there under the 1923 Land Act. So it's very difficult now for a big house owner who is not resident to claim that they're continuing to farm the land in a husband-like manner. So 
they begin to target much more so the big houses and their domains than Cumann Gael did beforehand. The internal migration schemes referred to by Terence Dooley were the attempts by Fianna Fáil, often over determined local opposition, to move impoverished landholders from Irish-speaking regions in the west of the country, formerly known as congests, as they hailed from areas under the remit of the Congested Districts Board. These Gaelgors, in a highly contested social experiment, were moved to newly purchased estates in County Meath. This resulted, after years of tension and conflict, in the creation of the Gaeltachs of Rathcarn and Bolia Gibb, or Gibbstown. William Nolan is the series editor of the Irish County Histories. His volume on Meath documents that experiment. Yeah, it was fascinating. I remember Tom Jones Hughes first brought my attention to it and he referred to it as a daring experiment in a, democra- in a democracy. He thought it was something more like it seen in the Soviet Union or somewhere where people were moved kind of, in a sense, and trust compulsory to some extent, lands were purchased in meat and people were brought across from the, the West. But it had dual purpose. It had the cultural purpose of extending the language and it was very much associated with the early days of Fianna Fáil and De Valera's image for Ireland. And uh, there's some great stories of the De Valera me- meeting a migrant from Kerry in Ballygib or Gibstown, a man called Foley, and the Foley is talking fluent Irish. And here's De Valera, the architect of our cultural revolution, and he's delighted that suddenly in the heart of the pale, which he had associated with gentry and big houses, that here you have a man talking fluent Kerry Irish. Now, there's pros and cons. It, it did and it didn't help the Irish language to some extent, but it did help County Meath in an enormous number of ways. And one way it helped them, of course, was in their county senior football team, because the Meath teams who won all Ireland's had mainly the background of the players was from the Land Commission families. One of them, of course, being Colm because one of their best footballers. So in that sense, there was tensions, obviously. There were, I mean, there was a lot of opposition. Locally. Oh, absolutely. Well, there were Fianna riots. Fall, I think Fianna Fáil at that time did a great uh, propaganda, had a great propaganda coup, insofar as they implied, well, they're coming to empty lands. These places have been empty for years. They're dominated by the, 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 back, the black bullock, as it were. Whereas people in Meath knew that they themselves, their ancestors, had been shifted from the same land. So that idea of emptiness kind of appealed. And then the idea of the Gaeltacht and regalicising Ireland from the heart of the pale, taking over the landlord estates, installing kind of these newcomers in there. And it was an enormously important experiment. And it worked, obviously, for, I think it worked anyway for, say, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, at the time, in the 30s, it resonated with some of what we're seeing in Ireland today. I mean, literally, there were campaigns where the slogan there was, were, no and, immigrants here. Yeah, and I think it's, it's been said these now. Were, these, weren't, these weren't immigrants. These were not people coming from abroad. These were coming, from, coming from the rest of Ireland. Yeah, but they were so different in terms of uh, being talking Irish and not ever, not being familiar with that landscape. And coming from the West, there's some fascinating stories of the, the interaction of the newcomers with the meat landscape. And one of the time, things I was talking to a man called Potter O'Connor down in Rockhorn, and he came with the first uh, migrants there in 1935. And one of the things he remembers, he said he got up in the morning and they went out a court to a clocker looking for stones. And he said all the old people were completely hemmed, they felt completely hemmed in by the landscape of meat, had claustrophobic. But they developed, and Rockhorn particularly developed a great community, and they've made enormous, you know, they've kind of integrated well in every sense. But as you said, there would have been, obviously if land is concerned, there's going to be 
kind of opposition by locals. They want the land, and then you're bringing in people from outside, and they want the land. Lucky enough that they were able to fit it into the kind of narrative of the landlord and the grazing farms and the ranchers, and Fianna Fáil kind of rose on the back of all of that. And if you have land to give out, you're, you're going to be successful. Given that there are about half as many Irish farms today as there were when the Land Commission had largely completed its work of redistribution by the 1950s and 60s, was there too much of a political and administrative focus in pleasing as many people as possible by giving them their own farms, as opposed to creating economically viable holdings? I think there was. First of all, one has to consider that Ireland is a largely unindustrialised country by the time even of the passing of the 1903 Wyndham Land Act. There was an inevitable land hunger because land was the only real access to social status. And, I mean, if you want one very good example of how that worked, if you look at the introduction of the 1918 proclamation by the British government to try to entice young Irishmen into the British army, I mean, they aim it specifically at farmer's sons who are working as shopkeepers, therefore holding out to them the prospect of getting back into farm ownership when the war is over. So I think that basically encapsulates the idea that, you know, access to land is hugely important. So they are, in many respects, playing to this. They're playing to the old slogan that has been there for generations of the land for the people. And as far as the people are concerned, you have those who are at the very top, um, you know, the sword of Damocles hanging over their head, the fear that the Land Commission is going to come at some stage and pick, take large chunks of the farm for redistribution. And at the very bottom, you have the landless and the agricultural labourers who are holding on to this hope that someday they're going to actually become farmers. They're playing a political game that doesn't necessarily help Irish agriculture in the 1920s, 30s, and right up for that matter to the 1960s. Terry Dooley, concluding our centenary look at the 1923 Land Act and its impact on the redistribution of Irish farmland. On next week's History Show, the story of the state body, the Land Commission, charged with the task of dividing up landlord and untenanted property amongst Irish farmers. We also look at the controversy surrounding its extensive archive and ask why it's not more freely available for consultation by scholars and by the general public. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio 1. For me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.